Our Father, there is no greater reason to rejoice that our soul could have than to hear the message that our sins can be forgiven and we can be reconciled to our Creator. We who have offended can be requited of our sins. We who have rebelled can be made children. We who have stood against you by your grace can be counted on your side. We who have rejected Christ can be found in him to receive all of the blessings that he has accomplished for us, all of the glories that are his that we get to participate in. In fact, as you tell us in your word, the church is part of the glory of his inheritance. And so I pray as we look briefly at your word this morning, as we hear the testimonies of your grace, that the glory of Christ would fill our hearts and transform us. And we ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, go ahead and open up your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. This is, of course, a a, a baptism service. It is a time where we get to hear some testimonies of God's saving grace. This morning in the life of uh, two individuals, we'll hear some more at the end of the week, or excuse me, the end of the month as well. Uh, But this morning we'll be listening to two uh, testimonies about God's saving grace in their life. And it is appropriate that it would happen on Easter because Easter we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And those who are saved are the fruit of that resurrection. These testimonies and anybody else in here who truly knows the Lord Jesus Christ are evidence. You are proof. You are fruit of that saving work and grace of Jesus Christ, when he rose from the dead after providing atonement for sins. And there is no other place, or there are other places we could go, but where this glorious grace, where the, the wonder and the magnificence of what God has actually accomplished for us is found, and in the book of Ephesians, particularly verses 1 through 10. So that's, that's a lot to cover. There's a lot there. We're obviously just going to look at it broadly in the big picture so that we might taste a bit of the wonder of grace in Christ. Since we're jumping into chapter two, let me just very briefly mention to you why it's here and and the context that it fits within. Paul is explaining this very thing, the riches of God's grace, which began not with the appearance of Christ, not with calling out Israel, not without making that covenant promise to Abraham, not even with the promise that he made in the garden after the fall. It is something that began... In eternity past, if we could speak of it that way, before the foundation of the world, before he created anything, God had made a covenant within himself among the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit that he would redeem for himself and call to himself and unite to himself through the Son who would become incarnate, a people to know his mercy and to know his grace forever. And so Paul opens up with that reality 
that reality. And he speaks of how the church was chosen in Christ. All of God's people were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. How Christ, the incarnate son, is the one who came and provided redemption for those people, redemption for their sins, the forgiveness of sin. How the spirit came and enacted that and empowered that word to bring forth life and faith in Christ to those chosen before the foundation of the world, uniting them to the son, making them sons and daughters. And he talks about in this first chapter how God had designed in, this, uh, in the eternity past to sum up all things under the administration of Christ, who is the head not only of all creation, but particularly the head of the church. He is far above all rule and power and authority in this age and in the age to come. And the church is his body. And so these are the glorious realities of those who belong to Christ. And then... We come into chapter 2, and we come into chapter 2, which is meant to emphasize the amazement of this grace, the glorious reality of the fact that the church has experienced forgiveness of sin, the glorious reality of what it means that God fulfilled this promise. And so he brings us in the chapter 1 through uh, verses 1, or verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2, the striking and glorious and magnificent testimony of this infinite grace. Let me read verses 1 through 10, and then we'll just look at it briefly as we prepare for these testimonies. Remember here, he's speaking to the church. He's saying, this is what you were, this is what you are in Christ. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God... Rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. We're going to look at this through three simple headings. Three simple headings. The first is that we were spiritually dead to God. Spiritually dead to God. Isn't it interesting that he would begin here, it reminds us in, in a bit, although it's a, a slightly difference in nuances, but when he begins the gospel, the good news of salvation in Christ in the book of Romans, what does he begin with? The wrath that resides on all of humanity for the suppression of the truth and unrighteousness. Here, he begins to explain the wonder of the grace and he begins with the reality of our condition outside of Christ, the condition of all outside of Christ, which he says is to be spiritually dead. He says being dead. Dead would be a more literal translation. 
Each child brought into this world carries physical life but spiritual death within them. Remember, he's speaking to Christians. He's saying this is not what you are now, but this is what you were. We covered this briefly last week. That this is the condition of being in Adam. This is what we inherited from Adam. This is what is the result of the fall. The consequences of that first sin are that all of the descendants from Adam and from Eve would be born, conceived, as David would say in Psalm 51, 5, in sin. In sin, by nature. We come into this world. Indeed, we are even conceived with the reality of sin Inherent in us. It is the fruit of that promise that God said, In the day you eat from it, in the day you disobey me, you will surely die. Paul says in Adam in Romans 5 that sin entered in the world and death through sin, so that death spread to all men because all sin. That is certainly physical death, but it is a spiritual death. Physical death is merely the physical consequence of what is an eternal, internal reality that, namely, that man is estranged from God. Man is estranged from God by nature. And he defines his spiritual death as being in your trespasses and sin, in your trespasses and sins. These speak of a condition of moral and spiritual rebellion to God. Now, the idea of death here is often noted in the explanation of this path that it has this, this idea of the inability to respond. If you go to a corpse, you throw cold water on its face, it's going to do nothing. Why? Because there's no life within it. There's nothing in it. It's unable to respond to anything external to itself because it is dead. It is lifeless. And that is certainly true and inherent Here, and it is that natural state of all men that there is no ability to respond to God because there is no life within them that can rightly see God and respond to who he is. However, it's even more than the inability to respond. The idea of trespass contains the idea of transgression, overstepping, defying the will of God. The term sin, as we noted again last week, and is, is defined by John as being lawlessness. And lawlessness isn't just that we don't do good things. Lawlessness is, according to Paul in Romans 8, it is hostility to God. It is a refusal to submit to God. It is a refusal to submit to his will, to his word. It is a refusal to live up to the reality of his image in us and his moral holiness and goodness and righteousness. It is rebellion. And this is the condition of all men. It is a refusal to live in a way that loves God with all of our heart, all of our mind, and all of our soul. One described these terms in this way. They are synonymous. They connote more than an inadvertent mistake. They're not mistakes. They're not failures. They express a conscious and willful action against God's holiness and righteousness, and thus a failure to live as one should. So he's is noting here that all of us by nature, all of us when we come into this world, are in the condition of the state or the sphere of death, in a condition of moral rebellion and spiritual rebellion to God, utterly excluded from the life of God, unable to respond to him, at hostility with him, living contrary to his word, without regard to his glory, without fear of his holiness, and a willful indulgence of our own desires. That's man. That's man. And you notice he says here that it is your trespasses and sins. It is not man as a victim. It is not man as a hapless uh, victim of sin. It is man as a 
culpable, morally responsible agent who defies God by refusing to believe in him and the testimony of himself in creation, in conscience, in his word, and ultimately in Christ. And this spiritual death is not merely the condition that we are all in by nature. He says it is directly connected to the work of Satan. It is, in fact, a demonstration that we come into this world sharing in the spiritual likeness, not of God, but of the devil. Look at what he says. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And it is significant that Paul immediately identifies spiritual death and connects it also with the activity of Satan and demons. And how does he mark it at first? He says this death was demonstrated in that you walked according to the course of this world. According to the course of this world. It could be translated the age of this world. The idea is this. According to the spiritual character of this present world under sin, under the predominant influence of Satan. That's how you walked. That was the character of your life. As the world thinks, you thought. As the world holds certain values in contradiction to the righteousness and the glory of God, you held those values. As the world had a certain foundation for truth that wasn't grounded in revelation, you had a foundation for truth that wasn't grounded in revelation. As the world promoted a view of humanity, man's purpose of God and morality, you aligned with it. You connected with it. You followed with it. That's who you were. And he describes it again as being a world system that is directly under the influence of Satan. He says, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedient. And he says, the course of this world, again, isn't just something that happens to be. It is an age that has characteristics that are defined by Satan and demonic activity. This is throughout Scripture. He says, that's what you aligned with. That was a part of your nature. As a matter of fact, Satan is described in a variety of ways in scriptures. He's called by Jesus himself the ruler of this world in John 14, 30. He's called by the apostle John in his epistle, 1 John, the one in whom the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. He's later called by Paul in 2 Corinthians, the God of this world. Satan's activity is in the very opening pages of Scripture, leading and tempting humanity into sin and rebellion, and he's been active ever since. Even in the book of Ephesians, he's going to return to this theme. Again, he's going to say in chapter 4, verse 27, do not give the devil an opportunity, what? To play on your anger, to cause discord. He says, do not... Fall to the schemes of the devil in chapter 6, verses 11 through 12. And there he says the believer's struggle isn't against flesh and blood, but he says it's against the rulers and the power and against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. In other words, there is a spiritual reality that is shaping and forming the world in which you live in, and that's where the battle is. And here he says you walked... Outside of Christ, everyone walks in connection with that spirit. He says it's the spirit now working in the sons of disobedience. 
disobedience to God, disobedience to Christ. And this is everybody outside of Christ. And this includes every variety of rebellion. We sometimes think of the demonic and the satanic as, you know, whatever happens to make the evening news or national news. But this uncovers everybody. This uncovers the morally religious upright person who is unregenerate and trusting in their religion to reconcile them to God. If you remember that Jesus called the religious leaders and the shapers of first century Judaism that you are of your father the devil and you want to do his desires, he was a murderer from the beginning. And so that's what you want to do. Now, what is the character of the satanic influence? What is it? Well, he goes on to describe it. He says this. You walked according to the course of this age, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the sons of disobedience. And what was the character of that life? Verse 3. We lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. How is it described? Indulging the lusts of the flesh, the desires of the flesh, and of the mind. Later, as he describes these Gentile believers, who is his primary audience, he says in verse 17, This I say and affirm, together of chapter 4, with the Lord, that you walk no longer as the Gentiles walk. How do they walk? In the futility of their mind. Darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. They have become callous, having, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. He'll later go on and describe the world outside under this influence. And he speaks of it's a world marked by unwholesome speech, stealing, lying, Falsehood, immorality, impurity, silly talk, coarse jesting, covetousness, and idolatry. Who tries to do their sin in secret and he says it's so evil that it's not even good to speak of those things which they do in secret. And he's not saying here then that Satan makes man do these things, that he makes anybody do these things. Again, as we noted last week, look at what he says in verse 19. If you're there, he says, they having become callous have given themselves over. As responsible moral agents the world has. And if you're in that condition, you are described in that way. The point is simply this, that Satan shapes the culture and directs the ideologies of the world in a way that tempts and appeals to the fallen, greedy, self-centered desires of the sinful heart. And he does it in such a way that there's something for everyone. It does not all that fall and are blinded and given over to the same kind of lust. There's a variety there's the kind of influence that comes from empty religion or the false morality of empty spirituality. It's the most, un he provides something for the most unrestrained pursuit of individual lust and everything in between. And here's the thing, here's how it's blinding. He doesn't make people sin, but he shapes the course of the world. Listen, that the world appeals to the fallen heart. So an unbeliever lives in the world and, affects and, and experiences these ideologies and goes, the world makes sense to me. It connects with me. It connects with what I want. It connects with my desires. It connects with my beliefs. It connects with the things that bring me pleasure. So when I look at the world and what it offers to me, I say, yes, that makes sense. But when the gospel comes in to the fallen heart, it sounds like foolishness. It's offensive. It sounds, it's like that doesn't connect with who I am. That doesn't connect with what I want. The gospel comes in and it says to me, that's something that is strange. 
It's offensive. It's foolish. It's not understandable. It doesn't connect with who I am on the inside, and of course it doesn't for the fallen heart. So outside of God's doing, there's nothing within the individual then to change this condition or even to desire to change it for God's sake. And what does he say finally here? That remaining in this condition, he says in chapter 2, again, that all people outside of Christ are by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Children of wrath even as the rest. In chapter 5, verse 6, he'll repeat the same things. When he talks about the sin in the world, he says, because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Note the family terms here, children, sons. It again, it is our inherited nature. It is our natural condition apart from grace. That means that we come into the world with a nature conditioned for only one thing, wrath. In Romans 9, he talks about what if God endured with much patience vessels meant only for destruction, which is what he does. He also says in that context that he might display his mercy, that he might display his glory on those who he shows mercy. And so God's wrath is coming upon this world as the holy response of our infinitely glorious creator who daily endures the injury and provocation of his image bearers. And that's what Paul is saying. That's what you were. You were a part of that world. And it's the condition of every single person outside of Christ. Even if you were here this morning outside of Christ, that's you. It's you. And until this is grasped, the next words will not be sweet. And until you feel the reality of death, until you can listen to Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, and with full sincerity of your heart say, yes, that was me. I see it. I know it. That's my heart. That's my condition outside of Christ. Fully acknowledge it. Hate it. Then the next words will be uh, unimportant. Certainly not life-changing. And Christ certainly will not be worth losing all. But if you have felt the reality of your death, then these are some of the most precious words in Scripture. Look at verse 4. But God. But God. But God. But God did something. God is not like man, marked by violence and wrath and unforgiveness, retaliation. God is the offended one, stepped in and did something that only divine and infinite love could do. And that's exactly where he points us. But God, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. He spiritually raised us in Christ, and that is the second point. And this is a massive juxtaposition. He goes from holy wrath to holy love, to divine vengeance and justice, to mercy, grace, kindness. This is the reality being witnessed to in these testimonies this morning. They were dead, but they have been made alive. They were under wrath, and now they are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. They who anticipated only judgment now in verse 7 anticipate that God will in Christ show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is the testimony of Easter. This is what Easter is about. This glorious work of God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He said earlier in chapter 
1 and verse 20 that God raised him, speaking of Christ from the dead, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. That's where Christ is right now, physically, bodily, until he returns, interceding for his people. It's sometimes called the session of Christ. It's where he is now. Active, just as active now as any, at any point in his incarnation, now interceding for his people. Here, in connection with the resurrection of Christ, he says in verse 6 that God has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Indeed, all who are in Christ are, in fact, by their union with him, his inheritance and the glory of his inheritance. Said that back in verse 18, that we might understand what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And these testimonies bear witness to this, that these and all who are in Christ have been by the supernatural, profound, mysterious, and glorious work of God by the Holy Spirit granted life to the dead sinner, united in the Christ by faith, which is itself a gift so that they might be counted to be seated with Christ in all of his resurrection glory with the Father. Sharing in his life, he'll say to the Colossians that our life is hidden with Christ in God. Hidden with Christ in God. That's the idea here. Seated with Christ because we are hidden with Christ because the believer is in union with Christ that he counts us as there with Christ who is in his presence right now in all of his matchless glory as redeemer. Again, for the sinner who has understood his condition, this is the most wonderful news, that in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. The sinner, the guilty, can be assured that one day by this work of Christ and by the promise of God and by the spiritual reality that he has given to the believer, that we who are guilty, dead, have been given life so that we might in Christ stand before the Father. Listen to this. Holy and blameless. Holy and blameless. Now, if you're a Christian in truth, then you hear those words and it makes your jaw drop. You go, oh, holy and blameless? Me? I know me. If there's one thing I'm not, it's holy and blameless. But how can we be holy and blameless? Because Christ has atoned for our sin. Christ has lived a life in perfect accord with the righteousness of God. Christ has risen from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father. And our life is hidden with Christ so that you, the sinner, me, the sinner, me, the guilty one, you, the guilty one, can stand before an infinitely holy God loved and accepted and delighted in in Christ. That is the glory of Easter. That is amazing. Jesus Christ, who died as the atoning sacrifice for sin, is risen from the dead. He has destroyed the works of the devil for those who are in him, who get to experience that work of his. He has removed the sting of death, which is sin, 1 Corinthians 15, and he has ascended to the right hand of the Father, which is where all who are united to him are with him. The estranged sinner under wrath is now in Christ brought near to him by infinite mercy and unbounding love and incalculable grace. As a matter of fact, Paul says that the whole 
move movement of the Christian life, and he prays this for the Ephesians church and by extension all who are in Christ, that we might grow in our understanding. And he says in verse 18, and may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. That's, that's what we seek to understand. Again, notice the contrast. We who were dead have been made alive together with Christ. We who were enslaved to sin and excluded from God have been seated with him in the heavenly places. We who were subject to eternal wrath are now the objects of the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. We who were by nature children of wrath are of the spirit and of the spiritual, spiritual lineage of Satan have been counted sons and daughters adopted in Christ. Sons and daughters of God. That's the glory of the resurrection. How did he make us alive together with Christ? He mentioned it in verse chapter 1. In him, verse 13, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you. He says in verse 15, in your love for all the saints, it is by faith, it is by faith, Faith in the gospel, faith in Christ, faith in the truth. And it is a faith that comes by the sovereign grace of God. It is not by the will and determination of spiritually dead men. It's the sovereign grace of God. It's not one day that a spiritually dead person decided to be wiser who decided to be alive and not dead. By grace, he says, you have been saved in verse 8. And that not of yourselves... It is a gift of God, not a result of works, lest anyone should boast. It is by sovereign grace alone that you have been, if you are in Christ, raised up with him. The dead sinner could no more raise himself with Christ than Lazarus could decide not to be dead and walk out of the tomb. No more than that. It was the sovereign command of Christ who said, Lazarus, come forth. It was the sovereign command of Christ that in that command, it had inherent to it and with it the power of God and of the Holy Spirit to bring about the thing he commanded in the one he commanded. Lazarus, in that case, come forth. And Lazarus walked out because God had made him able to do that. And that's what God means when the gospel comes as the, as the power of God. We are brought forth by the word of truth. Because that truth, that word, that gospel comes inherent with it by the sovereign activity of God with a power to convert the sinner. It comes with life-giving power. And so salvation, the decision to unite the dead sinner to Christ to bring the guilty sinner to life is the fruit of that which was granted before the foundation of the world, granted in Christ before the foundation of the world. Obviously more to say, but let's note this last point as we come into these baptisms. What is the fruit of it? How does one know that they, in fact, have been seated with Christ in the heavenly places? That's easy to say, right? That's easy to say that. How do we know that? That that has, in fact, been our experience. Then the third point would be the spiritual fruit of grace. And this I'm just going to mention. How does one know he or she has been raised up with Christ? Well, he says it here in verse 10. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's how we know because we understand our death because we're amazed about the reality of life. The whole new paradigm of our existence has changed 
and we walk consistent with the good that God has designed for us. And let me just make a note here. If you're reading that and thinking, well, I'm a good person, this is not just being nice. When he speaks about good works here, it is the acts of a spiritual life that flow from faith in Christ. That's what makes them good. From a renewed mind, from a new heart, from the indwelling spirit of God. They are good, not because they are helpful to other people. He's not calling for moralism as proof of salvation. They are good because they are consistent with the work of God by the Spirit. They are good because they are bound to the Word of God. They are good because they are those that flow from our union with Christ and for His glory. That's why they're good, because of Christ, not because of you. This isn't good in general. This is good as that which the Spirit produces in a, in a sinner made alive. It is a life with a completely new orientation, not compelled by living for the temporal, for if anyone loves this world, he must die. It's a life that finds a new excitement and an eternal reality that becomes the most important and profound reality within their soul. It is a life lived no longer for how to please self, but how they might please God and how our actions reflect God and this grace. It is a life that finds the deepest pleasures related to nearness to God and not the distractions of the world. It's a life transformed. And that is what we're going to hear in these testimonies, and that is the fruit of the resurrection. God took someone who was dead, and he made them alive. God took someone, a heart by nature and rebellion to him, and it made him want to delight him, to live consistent with him. It took the heart that was self-centered and made it Christ-centered, who had no regard for the word of God, who wants our lives to yield to him, and who meets with God in the pages of Scripture. And those are the testimonies. And so as you listen to these testimonies, many of us in this room will rejoice and delight and remember God's grace in our life. Some of you, it will make no sense. Or at best, it might be a religious nice thing that you see in church. And if that's you, and you don't understand your death, you don't understand what it means to bear the burden of the realization that you are by nature a child of wrath. If the but God and what he's done is not precious to you, then listen and ask God that he might do in you what he did in them. Because it is by sovereign grace. You won't decide to do that at some point. You won't just decide to be a Christian later. If you are, it'll be God's doing. And you need to appeal to him. And you need to trust in him. So I pray that that would be the fruit of these testimonies in our lives uh, this morning to the glory of Christ. Let me pray and then John's gonna come lead us in a hymn and then we'll get ready to hear these testimonies. Father, thank you for this marvelous work of grace that you have done in the Lord Jesus Christ. May he be the precious jewel and treasure of our hearts. And as much as he isn't in anything else has a greater importance to us in our affections, may you help us to put that to death. That we might live for Christ, that we might worship Christ, that we might follow Christ, that we might be filled up to the fullness of God because of your love for us in Christ. Do this work in us, and may you exalt Christ in these testimonies this morning. And we pray this in the matchless name of him who died and him who rose from the grave for us. The Lord Jesus, amen.